0: Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein.
1: This is Joe Schuldenrein and welcome to another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's episode is uh, a a classic example of how a large-scale project in cultural resource management is bringing us some critical new insights into, uh, in this case, Southwestern archaeology. Uh, Public archaeology and private archaeology, privately funded, publicly funded is accounting for an increasingly significant percentage. As a matter of fact, the overwhelming dominance of archeological funding in North America, certainly in the United States in particular, is coming from the public and private sectors. And, uh, as we've discussed in several other episodes, the, uh, Ability of pure academic research to be funded by scientific institutions has diminished and shows all signs of diminishing further, unfortunately, with the passage of time. So, uh, one of the critical elements of this turnaround in uh, archaeological funding from the private and public sector is that there is a major public outreach component, and because we are increasingly dependent On uh, public and private funds, there is an emphasis on outreach and education and justification in large measure for why we do the things we do and how we can provide. The information from these large scale and small scale excavations to the public. Today's project that we're going to talk about is the Animus La Plata project in Colorado, which is providing incredibly new insights into Southwestern archaeology, ranging from issues like settlement patterning and social organization of a period of about one to two thousand years ago. And, um, also some very intriguing elements of uh, war, and conquest in prehistoric America of the of the great desert west and i am very pleased to have a colleague of mine who has developed a very very prominent career in private sector archaeology and that's mr jim potter jim is a principal investigator for a firm known as paleo west which is one of the premier consulting firms in the Southwest. He uh, received his PhD from Arizona State University in 1997. Since that time, he has worked on projects throughout the American Southwest, including the one we're going to talk about, which is the Animus La Plata Reservoir Project in Southwestern Colorado. And he has also done extensive work on the Navajo Reservation. And uh, Jim has authored and co-authored numerous books and monographs, as well as many articles in various journals including American Antiquity, which is the premier journal of the profession, Kiva, the Journal of Anthropological Archaeology, and the Journal of Field Archaeology. Jim's research interests include early village formation in the American Southwest, landscape studies, faunal analysis, hunting and feasting as social practice, Identity construction and American Indian involvement in archaeology, which is now a very major theme in contemporary archaeology. I'm very pleased to welcome to the program, uh, Dr. Jim Potter. Jim, thanks for for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Jim, why don't you give us a little bit of background on this phenomenally interesting project, the Los uh La Plata, the Animus La Plata project in uh, in Southwest Colorado, and uh, tell us how it evolved, and if you would put a little bit of emphasis on how the uh, the integration of of contract archaeology emerged in this in the formation of this project.
2: Sure. Well, uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, it's a it was a reservoir project um, that was uh, developed and. Uh, engineered and constructed by the Bureau of Reclamation. And uh, to facilitate the project, um, they hired, or they administered the project through the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe. It's a water rights uh, settlement project, and the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe got involved in administering the project, uh, actually a construction company, uh, a, a tribally owned construction company built the dam for the project, and then for the archaeology, that was administered through the tribe as well. So the firm I worked with at the time uh, bid on the project uh, through the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, and so uh, at the get-go, it was a tribally administered project on federal land and funded by um, the Bureau of Reclamation, this reservoir project. Basin where the reservoir was to be built uh, and it had already been surveyed so we knew pretty well where the sites were and we knew what kind of resources we were going to deal with Uh, and we went in in there and we began uh, sampling sites in there and excavating sites Um, and one of them was a fairly large site uh, the Sacred Ridge site which we'll be talking about quite a bit today Uh, and what's interesting about this site is it dates uh, to an early the early Pueblo One period is the earliest time period in the southwest where settled villages are starting to emerge on the landscape. Um, and around this larger village... Uh, let um, us
1: now, why don't you tell us exactly what time frame we we're talking about?
2: Okay, the uh, early Pueblo I period is about 725
1: to 825. Right, so about 1,200 okay. years ago.
2: About twelve hundred years ago, and what's interesting about uh, the Ridges Basin is that you have intense but short-lived uh, occupation. So you have basketmaker, a little bit of basketmaker two occupation in the five hundreds, eighty-five hundreds, and then you have a bit of a hiatus, and then in the seven hundreds, folks come back into the into the basin and they start forming themselves into these uh, settlement clusters. One of which is a, a large. Larger village. You, um,
1: this yeah. is a period, of course, where uh, I think may, m- many of the listeners know that the Southwest was clearly one of the most dominant uh, centers of evolution for, for prehistoric America. But we had already a very sophisticated series of, of uh, social systems and uh, settlements that was already in place. I mean, the area was pretty well settled at this point, wasn't it?
2: Yes, Uh, but people are moving around quite a bit still. Right, right. Um, And so migration migration plays a big role in this story because uh, folks migrate into the Durango area at about AD seven hundred, and they start forming uh, these. Like I was saying, settlement clusters on the landscape, uh, and we don't we're still tr- trying to understand what these settlement clusters represent, whether they're communities, whether they're villages, uh, whether they're extended household concentrations it's um, it's, a, it's an interesting time period because it in my mind it's a very experimental time period where you, where you have uh, scattered farmsteads on the landscape, but then they're tethered to these larger centers, uh, which are some of the earliest villages. So it's a very interesting time period in that respect.
1: What do we know about the subsistence at that time?
2: Well, um, they're heavily dependent on corn agriculture. Uh, if you compare, um, if, for instance, Basket Maker 2 um, stuff that we looked at, they were hunting as much as they were growing corn, at least in Ridges Basin. By the by, 8700, seven they're, they're pretty dependent on corn. Corn agriculture, maize agriculture, um, but this is not to say that they're also not hunting um, large game. In fact, these sites are at about 6,800 feet in elevation, and one of the one of the resources that these early villages are targeting are uh, mule deer. Um, so they they are still targeting um, and hunting large game uh, fairly extensively. Uh, in addition to growing lots and lots of corn.
1: And do we know what the relative proportion of the subsistence base was uh, gr- agriculture versus hunting? Are we getting a picture of that? Do you have any thoughts on that at this point?
2: Um, I-, I would be, you mean in terms of uh, agriculture versus hunted stuff versus gathered? I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's a very. Yeah. It's a very uh, it's a very um, diverse diet at this point, which just put it that way. There's, there's um, I think, 70 different uh, plant groups that are represented in our botanical assemblage wow. uh, in the in the in for the Animus Flotta Project, and in something like um, 35 different animal species, in addition to corn. Uh, and a lot of corn grinding implements uh, everywhere. So it's a pretty. Their diet is very diverse, and they're a fairly fairly healthy population. Uh, if you look at the, the skeletal remains, they're a fairly healthy population at this time period.
1: Right, and your discoveries. You started this out with a survey, with a formal survey of the property, which was how big?
2: Uh, it's fifteen hundred. Uh, acres is the pool area and then there's the surrounding area around that so it's about the, the basin is about two and a half miles long and about a mile and a half crossed
1: wow okay yeah so it's,
2: a, it's a big area
1: and did you start with the uh, you know the audience is somewhat familiar with the procedure did you start with a survey and then go into a testing and then mitigation phases or how did how did it work
2: it had already been surveyed. The idea was that this was a sister project to the Dolores project, another reservoir project that happened 20 years prior. And while the excavations were going on at Dolores, a survey was being going on, it was being undertaken in uh, Ridges Basin. Um, so that was done early on. But the, the excavation, the mitigation never never got going. It, it got hung up in court cases and that kind of stuff. Um and there were some, some subsequent surveys to refine the data. But then um, it wasn't until 2002 when we were out there that actually full-scale excavation um, got going. And we didn't, we didn't have a testing phase. We, just, we went in there and uh, we just started excavating. What we could.
1: Was, that, was that because of developmental pressures, or was there construction? But they, obviously, the reservoir had to be built, and so there was obviously some sort of urgency to get it done relatively fast, or no?
2: Yes, especially the first year. One of the things they initially had to do was reroute a pipeline that ran through the baseline as an oil Pipeline. They had to reroute it around the basin, uh, and that was happening on a very tight schedule. And so that first season, we focused all of our efforts on uh, excavating sites in the way in that right away for that pipeline that was going around the basin. And that was a very tight schedule.
1: So that was driven by a very immediate concern that you had to actually vacate the area.
2: Yes, exactly. And we did that the first year, and then the second year we sort of took a step back and said, okay, what, how can we uh, implement uh, a, more, a more systematic sampling design uh, to start dealing with the, the larger sampling universe of the, of the project rather than just that pipeline
1: uh, right away? So you sort of dealt with the emergency first, and then you sort of took the step back and said, okay, now let's do this in a more systematic fashion.
2: So it was a good example of working back and forth between sort of salvage archaeology and then this more research focused uh, contract archaeology. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Great. Right. Well, well, we have to take a break here. And when we come back, uh, we will resume our discussion with Dr. Jim Potter of Paleo West Research on the Animus La Plata project right after these words.
3: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Very rarely does our news media spotlight some of the good things that are happening in our world. For more of these good stories and the people that are creating them, Tune in to Bread for the Journey with Mariana Cacciatore. Whether these good acts stem from personal tragedy or just a desire to help out and make this a better world in which to live, you'll find inspiration in every week's program. Connect with those that are doing something great for a change. Listen for Bread for the Journey, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. (music) VoiceAmerica.com <music>
0: You're listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra Now, back to the program. Can you do-
1: This is Joe Ryan. We're back uh, discussing a very unique project in Southwestern archaeology, the Animus La Plata project in Colorado with, uh, with Jim Potter, who is a very well known archaeologist in the American Southwest. And we were talking about the dynamics of project implementation when you're doing private sector and consulting work. And what Jim was talking about is that uh, these projects and the priorities uh, for the archaeology are much, very much driven by development schedules in this case, construction of the water system uh, for this uh, for the reservoir uh, was the primary motivation, but there was an oil and gas. Uh, There was an oil pipeline that had to be accommodated and had to be effectively cleared, for lack of a better word, archaeologically, before they could actually – his team could actually go ahead and systematically produce a research design that would allow him to more uh, scientifically – approach the project. So Jim, why don't you get into that next phase of research when you actually have a little bit more time to design your thoughts and 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 to plan the methods and the approaches that you want to take for doing this specific type of project? Why don't you talk about the research design?
2: Sure. So um one of the things we had the luxury of knowing uh when we went in was where all the sites were and uh Uh, previous researchers, uh, who had, who had produced, um, survey reports and, uh, uh, settlement data had noticed that settlements in this, uh, sites in this basin, um, tended to cluster on the landscape. And one of them was a, was a really tight cluster on a knoll on the west end of, of the basin. And this, this cluster of pit houses Homer Root who ran a field school there and he had had excavated up on top of that knoll uh, and found some very interesting things including uh, what do you call it, large dance plaza um, a small dance plaza uh, and then these rooms uh, that actually had walls adobe walls uh, um, arcing around uh, another kiva on the north end of this knoll and and, and he didn't backfill when we went in there, it kind of looked uh, it looked uh, you know like craters and depressions. Um,
1: kind of a it mess. Was, it
2: was kind of a mess. Uh, yeah. So uh, one of the things we, we wanted to do was we wanted to focus a lot of our attention on understanding the relationship between this large site and then the smaller clusters of sites around around the site, because it looked from ceramics that these were all relatively contemporary. Uh, being occupied in the in the 700s, 8700s, early 800s. Um, so one of our main research uh, focuses was understanding, you know, the chronology of the basin. Were these things uh, generally contemporary, or were they sequentially occupied? And then the relationship between this larger site and the smaller, scattered sites around it, habitation sites around it. So to do that, uh, we we. First, focused on this large site, understanding the sort of uh, the top of it, and, and trying to get a handle on this, the, this weird architecture that Homer Root had uncovered. And what we found was that, in fact, uh, nothing that Homer Root found was what we found. Um, and he, he, in fact, the walls that uh, of the rooms that had been um, found. Uh, around that one pit structure actually were fabricated. So we, we found old photographs and we could see that the walls were actually made of fill that the archaeologists or students had had created and then put rocks on top of. Um, really? We, yeah. So then God. we got down below that and we actually found the post holes for the actual rooms that were there. We suspected there were because we were it, there's often Surface rooms associated with kivas and pit structures. So, um, and then when we followed that section around a little farther, we noticed that he hadn't gone down all the way to prehistoric ground surface. And there, we found next to the pit structure on the north end of the knoll, and next to the fabricated rooms, which we now found the postholes for the real rooms, we found a small room uh, that was out under about uh, 60 centimeters of burned adobe. It had a hearth entity It was about two meters across square, and it had four massive post holes, support posts, and 15 secondary support posts. Um, and a guy by the name of Jason Chipka was in charge of this site, and he came up with this idea that this thing represented a, a, an adobe and wooden tower, a two-story structure, because of the, the size of the post holes, the number of post holes, and the amount of adobe Associated with it, even though Homer Root had scraped off a bunch of stuff already.
1: Um, so, so he so was th- thinking it was like an observation post or something like that.
2: Well, yeah. So it, it's uh, so we did a GIS. We did a we did a, a viewshed analysis, and it turns out that if you on top of this knoll, if you have a four meter high tower, uh, it doesn't significantly improve your view of any other site around you, but. What it does do, it improves. Every site in the in the valley can actually see it. So what we hypothesized is that, is that this thing wasn't necessarily a, a lookout, but it was a look at. In other words, it was to, it was to be impressive. Um, so it was then, from the
1: outside looking in, rather than from the inside looking out. In.
2: Yeah, and it would have. And there was a hearth in it. And, and nothing else. So there would, there would have been smoke coming out of it as well, which would have enhanced its visibility.
1: So um, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No how Go ahead. Uh,
2: well, there's, and then there's there's additional additional features associated with this feature that we discovered in what Homer Root called the, the dance plaza, which again he didn't go down far enough, thankfully. And we found a remodeled pit structure that had been converted into an entryway into a round another round room, and then that whole thing was palisaded. So it was an extremely strange uh, complex of features that was both highly visible from the outside with the tower and everything, but then surrounded by this palisade so you actually couldn't see what was going on inside.
1: So clearly it had to be defended, right? I mean, it was palisaded so there was obvious significance to it. Nobody wanted it disturbed, right? Right.
2: Yeah, well, uh, the way we're uh, thinking about it is that actually to uh, enhance the privacy of what was going on inside. So you couldn't actually Ah. see what was going on inside. Um, At the same time, people knew it was there because it was very visible. Um, And the idea, then, is that this site served as kind of a ritual center. Um, We also have oversized pit structures at this site, which served uh, sort of like great kivas or communal communal. Uh, rituals could be held, then this is the only site that that happened at. So uh, at some point, we think this site uh, was modified from simply a habitation site into uh, the ceremonial core of the the larger community.
1: And was this, this, so in other words, you were starting to develop a model of how these particular hamlets were starting to integrate with the greater site, correct?
2: Yes, exactly right. Um, and it didn't happen overnight. These, these remodels uh, and the construction of that tower appeared to have happened uh, in the late 700s, uh, just decades before um, the, the area was, was abandoned, was depopulated.
1: And your chronology was constructed, I'm assuming, to inform the listenership uh, on the basis of pottery types and presumably uh, radiocarbon dating from feature fills.
2: Yeah, we had radiocarbon dates, um, from annuals, uh, taken from across the sites. The, the, the pottery, uh, the decorated wares at that time are, uh, such a low proportion and they, the, the styles changed so slowly that they're not, they weren't as helpful as they would, were in, uh, Pueblo II and Pueblo III times. So, for, um for our chronology building, like at the Sacred Ridge site, we used a lot of fill, uh, stratigraphy and fill sequences, uh, and and uh, uh, tree ring dates. We had we had a number of tree ring dates from burn pit structures, um, and then we hypothesized that earlier structure, if a structure had been uh, earlier, it would have a higher a higher likelihood of being trash filled. And we had a number of trash filled pit structures next to burn structures, and and so the sequence would be that you're living in one pit structure. You abandon it. You build another one next to it. You take the post, and then you and then you fill it with um, your refuse while you're living in that later pit structure. So it's very it was a very um multifaceted way of, of building our chronology for these sites,
1: and complicated to some degree. Very because complicated. You're, yes. You're re- you're recycling some dirt and you're recycling fills and you're doing all those sorts of things. And I think one of the things yeah. that that people uh, should be aware of when you are doing archaeology in this part of the country Uh, there is a big advantage to uh, dating the wood because dendrochronology, which is the uh, sequence of tree rings that are common, uh, commonly utilized to, to date sequences in the Southwest, is a, a sort of a unique method of dating that can be used in other parts of the country, but are optimally used in, in dry and arid environments. And uh, those sequences are really well known where you're working, isn't that correct, Jim?
2: Yes, they're extremely well uh well known and, and constructed we can, there are some instances where you can get down to the season of the year that uh that a, a house was built um and then and then if it's got incorporated themes from another structure you can you can then date you know that other other structure as well so it's very complicated on one hand but then you get very uh, precise dates when it works um so it's really quite um informative when you're trying to build the history of a of a large village like this.
1: Now the wood that you were getting, I'm assuming that some of that was from from, from the posts.
2: Yes, these are construction beams. From they're, they're either roof beams or they're uh, support posts for for the roof.
1: And those are the ones that you were used for dating. Now how yeah. were you able I, I I'm assuming that at this point you're gradually starting to put together a picture of structure of the relationship between the main site and the ancillary hamlets and the communities that surround them and the, and the outbuildings and and yeah. the the complexes that, that, that you're actually encountering in the excavation. I guess one of the things that's interesting to me as you bring this up is what exactly, what kind of information did you get from the original Homer root excavations and the way you uh, described it, it was kind of haphazard and reflected, shall we say, the state of the art 40 years ago.
2: Um yeah well I'm not sure I would I would say it was uh, the state of the art 40 years ago cuz you had people like Earl Morris doing just top notch archaeology Archaeology, that's
1: correct yeah. yeah
2: and Homer Root was a, a bit of a character he was a reverend he, I don't think he was ever trained as an archaeologist and this is part right. of the problem so he would come out of the field and do maps you know from memory in his office and uh um so the the maps that he that he that he uh Created and then the notes that he took were really not that, not that helpful. Um, other than to just, we were able to point out how wrong he was. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't mean to harsh on people's work back then, but it really was uh, There was a stark contrast between. what get actually much from Homer's notes and from from his uh, from his field notes and maps, but what we did get he he collected a lot of whole pots and he was after burials when he was out there and unfortunately you could see his, uh, he had left trenches through through some of the middens where he'd been uh, sort of prospecting for for whole pots um, and those are still at the fort Lewis College, so he had um, at least Collected those and and put them in a museum at the at Fort Lewis College, and we have we have used those uh, in our style analysis for um, for the for the pottery. Uh, but and that's so about all you can say for, for for his work.
1: We will come back in a few minutes after these words, and we will resume our discussions with Dr. Jim Potter on the Animus Laprada project uh, after these words.
3: stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number 1 internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com what does the new healthcare law mean to you why is the country facing a deepening deficit can it be reversed if education is important to fund shouldn't we insist on seeing results do we have a workable energy policy who's calling the shots Tune in to In the Public Interest with host Mike Hudson. We'll cover public policy, everything from taxes and spending to health care and other threatened entitlements. If it's in the public interest, it's in your interest to know. In the Public Interest can be heard live every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And successful life.
2: Are you lost, fed up, knowing you're better, and yet not knowing why? Let Derek O'Neill transform the not knowing into the knowing by showing you the way. Whether it's not being able to drop the excess weight to unhealthy relationships or finances that you know you deserve. Derek provides insights that are like magnets to invite what you want in your life and repel what you don't want. Tune in to Derek now to discover how to improve your life immediately and unleash
1: the winner that you know you are and others need to see. Listen Mondays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety.
3: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com
0: listening to indiana jones myth reality and 21st century archaeology with dr joseph schuldenrein to be a part of our discussion today please call 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-geoarch.com now back to the program
1: We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein together with my uh, special guest today, uh, Dr. Jim Potter of Paleo West, a uh, private consulting company. And Jim is uh, giving us some insights into new developments in Southwestern archaeology based on his recent excavations at the Animus La Prada project in, in Colorado. Um, Jim, you were talking about the emergence of a, a very comprehensive, if we will, if you will, picture of the relationship between one central site and, for lack of a better word, hamlets and suburban areas, if we can call them that. And what is what is your perspective now that, that you've actually done some very serious analysis of these excavations? What, what, what is this telling us about the configuration of these sites and, and social organization and economics uh, at this particular point in time in southwestern prehistory?
2: Well, um, if you look... You know, if you look at the distribution of the houses within this basin, they are, they do tend to be clustered uh, into groupings. Uh, and if you, if you look at the differences among those clusters, um, some of the big, big differences uh, appear to be architectural in nature, uh, the style of the architecture. Um, you can look at low visibility traits like um, hearths and Deflectors and benches, and these sorts of things that uh, are more enculturated sorts of style, uh, how someone would build a house. And uh, what's interesting is that those kinds of traits do tend to cluster, uh, especially between what we're calling the eastern cluster at the base of Carbon Mountain on the east end and Mm -hmm. the Sacred Ridge site on the west end. And there's some uh, pretty distinct architectural. Uh, differences in those in those groupings um, and that also includes the size and shapes of the houses themselves. The ones in the um, eastern cluster tended to be more roundish um, and the ones in the uh, sacred ridge tended to be more d shaped so one of the questions is what is this what does this mean uh, Are these different folks coming in from different areas when they're migrating in in the 700s and organizing themselves into distinct clusters of houses within this community? Um, uh, or is there something else going on? Uh, if, if you look at the artifacts as well, um, just even things like um, where they're getting their clay for their pottery uh, and where they're, where they're importing their, their redware from, they, they tend to be different. The Eastern Cluster tended to get their redware from a distinct area, to the west, and the Sacred Ridge folks tended to get their redware from a distinct, um, distinct area in, in southeast Utah. Um, so there's these there are these differences, uh, real stark economic and sort of stylistic differences within this community. Um, and then you have the Sacred Ridge site, the central site with the only ritual architecture in the community. So people would undoubtedly be coming to Sacred Ridge, to to participate in in the communal rituals. But they're then going back and doing very distinct things on a daily basis. Um, And the other thing that's going on at this time uh, in the 700s is that we have this sort of low level of of violence that we see. um, With with head trauma on uh, skeletal remains, we have a few features with uh, what look like murder victims where they're just... Tits are dug and people are thrown in with uh, head trauma. Uh, And if you look at, uh, if you compare the skeletal remains for this area, the the trauma uh, is is pretty high uh, on a relatively comparative, um, uh, in a comparative basis. So uh, we have an interesting. I think experimentation where you have people coming into the valley, potentially from different areas of the southwest, and trying to form this community um, around this, this village, uh, but there's uh, you know, conflict and distinction within the community at the same time.
1: And I think that's one of the elements of this particular project that's really raised its profile because uh, I think a lot of people are under the impression that uh, for probably because of not having read a lot about it and because we really don't have – that much documentation, that a lot of the Native American groups were basically very, very peaceful, and uh, warfare, in the sense that we know it, is something that really we don't know a whole lot about, and and you're giving us some very firm indications, and obviously you've done some sophisticated reconstructions to say that this, in fact, was not the case. So can you put together a sort of a, a chronology of what happened or a sequence of events that may have uh, given us some insights into conflict at this place and at this particular point in time?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, the the model that uh, seems to make sense uh, with the data the most is that folks were moving in, groups were moving in from various areas uh, from around the southwest uh, coming into to um, Sacred Ridge was one of the earliest occupied sites uh, that tended to to, I think, create a migration stream into the area because the, the environment was warmer and wetter. And you had marshy conditions in Ridges Basin at that time. We were able to reconstruct that through uh, our geomorphology. Um, we had uh, uh, quite a bit of um, waterfowl and fish and uh cattail pollen, and sort of riparian species in our archaeological record that are of species that aren't there today. So it was a much wetter environment that I think is drawing people in. They're able to come into these higher elevation uh, valley uh, and start growing corn and, and hunting. Um, and through time, I think there becomes a, a sort of us-versus-them uh, ethic that develops within the community and I think there's this low level of violence and conflict within the community that then uh, uh, precipitates uh, one final very massive uh, conflict within the community that ultimately destroys it and um, the area is depopulated by 820. And then the Durango area is never, we have no more prehistoric folks in the Durango area after that. It's just for a thousand years, there's nobody that lives there.
1: So I, I guess there's a couple of dynamics going on here. First of all, because your, your macro environment is obviously desertic and, and it's a very dry environment, and yet you have this little favorable habitat and biome or resource-rich area that is is clearly documented by, by the marsh that uh, I'm guessing has been dated very well. Uh, by the by, the stratigraphy and the geomorphology, and yep. and that's prob- that's probably drawing in uh, the word gets around, and it's drawing in population groups and, and and a variety of different people from the broader region into this area of economic richness, richness, and that in and of itself would would certainly lead to conflict and competition for scarce resources. Yep
2: you said it better than i did that's exactly right um and uh, the and the geomorphology we have a ponded sediment that uh in in the cut banks of that of that drainage that it dates right in there in the in the one period so yeah we have a, a very well dated uh geomorphological deposit that corresponds with um, that that pond that marsh um so i think you're, what you, how you describe it is exactly
1: uh, what what happened? Oh, how how old is this marsh and How long did it last?
2: Well, um, it was not around in the five hundreds, uh, and it was not around in the nine hundreds. So it's a pretty short lived um, phenomenon between, say, six hundred and.
1: So it was basically, yeah, so you had three hundred years of sort of fluorescence and yeah. then a nice little punctuation point in the emergence of uh, of this village and i 'm assuming also uh, did you see that, did you see a reflection of, of hamlet expansion and, and growth and lateral movement of populations radiating away from the central place at this point in time as well
2: well. Um what we can see is, a, is an initial population coming in in the early 700s, and then at about 750 there's a real, um, uh, there's a real uptick in terms of uh, houses being built and people moving in. And I think that's when uh, all of the sort of issues and problems started happening. And that's when it looks like the Sacred Ridge site uh, started building these impressive uh, structures on top of it and expanding their communal architecture uh, to – to take into account all these new these new populations
1: and, and and would you say that um, it's, it's, i don 't know if it 's rhetorical or not but would you say that the prominence of the religious component and the ceremonial component sort of started to pick up at that point because it was such a a unique landscape and it obviously housed some of the uh, more promising resources, so in some ways one would assume that that the religious component might have expanded and become more significant to a greater population in the area?
2: I think that's true. I also think that, Ridge, we're using ritual as a, as a way to dominate uh, the landscape and as a power resource to uh, control uh, access to resources and, uh, and access to, you know, uh, power within the, the community. And I think the construction of that tower, uh, a tower complex is a reflection of that.
1: And it dates to that point in time? So that would sort of be the peak, or the peak of occupation and the yes. peak of population movement in the area. So it kind of fits into a nice little package on uh, sort of linking together uh, human activity, movements, conflict, environmental resources. It all just goes into this big package of uh, what you what you see is what you expect, and and it's kind of nicely verified by the archaeological record.
2: Yeah, it does. It creates a, a nice. Uh, a nicely well-documented history of a a community from its its inception to its ultimate demise. Uh,
1: And we will be back with Jim Potter uh, to conclude this unique episode of, of our program after these words.
3: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Are you ready to change your relationships, your business, your body, and your life? You'll want to tune in to Transformation Talk Radio with host Tony Litster. It's an inspiring hour of conversation, special guests, and wisdom that has made Tony an expert with personal life experience. His down-to-earth style will give you the keys to unlock your greatest potential. Listen for Transformation Talk Radio, live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listening can truly change your life. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris. Real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris Efesiu. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety You're listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra geoarc.com. Now, back to the program.
1: We are back. This is Joe Schuldenrun with my special guest, Dr. Jim Potter of Paleo West Research. And Jim is uh, talking to us about a very, very significant discovery uh, that is adding considerable information to our knowledge of the uh, prehistory of the southwestern united states and specifically his research in the animus la plata area of of colorado uh... we were talking about a very very uh, detailed reconstruction of landscapes and and prehistoric settlements around uh, twelve hundred years ago and uh... jim has been able to synthesize and assemble a variety of different lines of evidence to show how populations and settlement growth are related to environmental conditions, the migration of people because of the scarcity of resources in the desert west, such that during times of prosperity and climatic moist, moistness or moisture uh, periods that are wetter, uh, there is a clustering and a movement of, of uh, individuals into uh, biotic regions that produce uh, richer resources, and of course, as as the environment deteriorates, then the competition becomes more fierce, and as a result of that, we get into the not-so-nice aspects of the human condition, and that is competition that often leads to violence, and in this particular case, we have some of the best evidence for prehistoric violence, if you will, that we have anywhere in the Western United States. So on that note, Jim, why don't you tell us the information that you have on the massacre, if you want to call it, or actually what do you want to call it in terms of the actual uh, violence that you were able to identify in the area?
2: Uh, I think massacre is is an appropriate term because we were able to demonstrate that it happened over a very short period of time. And involved uh, quite a large number of people. We have an MNI of 35 individuals um, in a in a highly processed, uh, fragmented assemblage that we found in a pit structure on the Sacred Ridge site. Um, and as far as we could tell, this was one of the latest uh, events to occur at the site uh, before it was abandoned and before the entire region was was. He populated at about eight twenty five
1: and and what do you attribute how, to, how carefully can you reconstruct this massacre and what can you what can you actually pinpoint with respect to the uh, development of that sequ- sequence of events
2: well uh, you, you mentioned environment at the beginning of your um, your sequence um, here. It was, there was a cooling trend. There was a definite cooling trend that started at about 890 and persisted, I mean, I'm sorry, 790 and persisted right. into the 800s. So, um, not saying that that caused, uh, this, this level of violence, but it certainly didn't help, uh, and was probably increasing the competition for diminishing resources. At this point, they're probably overhunting the environment. Um, agriculture, agriculture is getting harder to, to grow in this uh, you're at about almost seven thousand feet, so a cooling trend is really going to put stress on your on your crops um, and you 've got this history of, of violence amongst these different clusters of households. Uh, this, the low level of violence that I talked about earlier. Um, so I think all of these things precipitated uh, this one final event. And the sequence is, is very interesting because the processing and killing of these people happened in a very orderly fashion. It happened within, on the floor of some of the pit structures at Sacred Ridge. We have uh, four assemblages of processed human remains where they're actually using the tates to process the remains of these people that had been killed, these 35 people. And if you think about what it would take to kill 35 or more, that's just the minimum number, to kill that many people, it had to have been a very, very coordinated effort. Uh, and then to then put the effort into processing these people's bodies. So they're scalped, their their bones are broken, every, they're all burned, they're smashed, um, uh, They have trophies taken off, but even the toe bones and finger bones are smashed. So they're reducing these people down into nothing and then depositing them into this secondary pit structure where we discovered um, over 15,000 individual uh, bone fragments. So if you can imagine 35 people Wow. being uh, reduced to fifteen thousand bone fragments—that's what we were dealing with. Uh, so, and then, are
1: we saying—are yeah. we saying that these thirty-five people were massacred in the same general place, or in various houses, or was there a central location where they were murdered? I mean, how how did uh, I didn't I didn't quite get that one.
2: Yeah, so. The evidence that we have for the processing is on is also on Sacred Ridge in three in three separate pit structures, three or four separate I got pit it. structures. Okay, okay. So it's very close to the to the to the final resting place of these folks in that in that uh, pit structure in the fill of that pit structure. So right. and that and that's one of the interesting things is that the these folks they're processed all and and reduced and uh, uh, uh smashed and burned and then put into a. Uh, an abandoned pit structure, and then fill is put on top of them to bury them and cover up the entire event. And so
1: then, th- this uh, was a calculated it, event here.
2: It was very calculated, and what's also interesting is that the osteologists were able to demonstrate that there was a, a pattern to the way that they they reduced the bodies. Uh, there, in other words, there was a formalized sort of structure to the to the method a method to the madness, as it were. Right. Um, yeah.
1: And so, and so, this was all like done by design. I mean, it was very, very cold. It was a cold murder, like, uh, like, like of the type that we see these days. And uh, do we have a lot of other examples of this type of massacre, this kind of murder in the Southwest? I know there's a couple of incidents, but or is this one of the most unique that we have?
2: Well, well, it's unique in that in that uh, it's the level of reduction of the, of the processing, uh, right. Of the bones it's also unique in its demographic structure because it has men women and children um, and old people and young people and uh-huh. so if you look at something like uh, cave seven which is a basket maker massacre site it had, it had sixty individuals or something but they're mostly males uh, right. and they're not they're not uh they're not processed down to to nothing they're just they have some head bashing but um, right. they're not they're not the effort was not put into There are examples of violence and large-scale large violence in the Southwest, uh, and it, they seem to come in episodes. Uh, 1150 is another time period in the Southwest where just at the end of the Chaco era, there's right. there's a number of different uh, right. possible examples of cannibalism and, and, and these sorts of things happening all over the, the northern Southwest, and then uh, the late... Late 1200s is another example that co- corresponds with the depopulation of the Four Corners region. So it's episodic, um, but this this is really the only uh, example we have where the the processing is so extreme, the demographic profile is so um, uh, interesting, and in then it includes everybody uh, everybody that would be a member of a family group, um, and then it's also uh, associated with these this early village, which we, we don't have any other assemblages like this in the Pueblo One period. So it is pretty anomalous.
1: So it's unique. And would you care to speculate on what it was? It really just the scarcity of resources? I mean, it had to be more than that, one would think.
2: Yeah, I don't think it was. I think that didn't help, but I really think that it was a, uh, a systemic conflict. Um, and so we Interesting. Did, yeah, yeah, so we did strontium analysis on the teeth to try to pinpoint where these folks Came from whether they were local or not, um, right. and it turns out that the most of the folks in the deposit appear to have been local. So there's two. I guess there's two possibilities. One is that Sacred Ridge was attacked, uh, and the attackers uh, did this to the people at Sacred Ridge. Um, the other, the other possibility is uh, something that I'm exploring, uh, where the the Sacred Ridge folks invited people to a to a feast in one of their giant uh, communal pit structures, and then attacked them. And this this is pretty common in tribal cultures where they have uh, what they call treachery feasts, where you you invite your your uh, your enemies or your neighbors or whoever to a feast to build a, a li- ostensibly to build alliances uh, and to create peace, uh, but then it, things turn ugly and you you end up killing them instead.
1: Um. Wow. And, and on that grisly <laughs> note, I'm afraid, we're going to have to close this and wrap it up. Jim, this has been extremely informative, and, and I appreciate your insights on this, and I, I, I'm glad that we're able to archive this particular program, and so uh, we appreciate your uh participation in the program and i want to thank you again uh listenership we will be doing another program next week and thanks so much for your involvement and looking forward to see you thanks so much and see you next time bye bye
0: thanks again for tuning in to indiana jones myth reality and 21st century archaeology with dr joseph schuldenrein Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.